Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, we'll start with our review of the disciplines and then we're gonna jump into our lesson. So you can take out your notebook and actually maybe I'll have you guys read. We'll switch it up. <laughs> so it, would anybody be willing to read the purpose of Wellspring if we start our review? Thank you. So um, we just want to remember why we're here each couple of weeks, um, that Wellspring exists to equip each one of you and myself, and to give each one of us the courage to take our hearts before God each day, to live a life that's been transformed by the gospel, so that the church, specifically our church, Grace Bible Church, is strengthened for the task of holding up the gospel to the world and displaying God's character. Discipline one, would anybody like to read that one? The heart? Thank you. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. So with discipline one, in light of what we learned from Scott Demarest um, a couple, I don't know how long ago it was now, but he did the lesson on honoring God in our Bible reading. I wanted to read a prayer um, that I came across in this book. It's kind of like the Valley of Vision book, but it's called Piercing Heaven. Um, Shelly has this one, too. Um, I wanted to read a, a prayer that I came across. It's by Philip Doddridge, and Scott had recommended in that lesson that we take time before we come to God's Word to con agree with God about his character, agree with God about our character. And this prayer I thought was so neat because I feel like it does both very well. And he just uses a lot of scripture to form this prayer. And so there's lots of references, but I'm not going to read the references because it kind of breaks up the, the flow of the prayer. So I'll just read it. I'm sure you'll, you'll recognize some of them. Um, if you're interested, I could send you this prayer. It's called, Show Me the Way from Your Word. Blessed God, I humbly adore you as the great Father of lights and the giver of every good and every perfect gift. I seek every blessing from you and especially those which may lead me to yourself and prepare me for the eternal enjoyment of you. I adore you as the God who searches the hearts and tries the reins of the children of men. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May I be renewed in the spirit of my mind. You give me a new heart and, a pla and place a new spirit within me. Make me a partaker of the, of the divine nature, and as he who has called me is holy, may I be holy in all I say. May the same mind be in me, which was also in Christ Jesus, and may I walk even as he walked. Deliver me from being carnally minded, which is death, and make me spiritually minded, since that is life and peace. And may I, while I pass through this world, walk by faith and not by sight, and be strong in faith giving glory to God. May your grace teach me to deny, to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Work in my heart the kind of godliness which is profitable for all things. Teach me by the influence of your blessed spirit to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. May I yield myself to you as alive from the dead, and present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in your sight, which is my most reasonable service. Amen. So I like having, sometimes having those prayers before I start my time in God's word because I do find that my heart needs to be reminded of God's character um, and needs to be softened. Sharon, could you just forward that to everybody? Sure, yeah. I'll send that in the, in the next email. I'll send out that prayer, sure. Um, would anyone like to read Discipline 2 with a home? Okay, thanks. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Okay, so it's your lucky day. I'm going to read from another book, <laughs> giving you all these wonderful resources. Um, I just wanted to take time to refresh our minds on two of the requirements for women from the Titus 2 lesson. Um, so I'm going to read two little snippets from Carolyn Mahaney's book, Feminine Appeal, which um, I recent re recently read through... Um, the chapter on loving our husbands 
and loving our children. So I think that applies to almost everybody in here. Um, I'll read this little section. Um, she calls it, oh no, I think I lost it. Okay, here it is. Um, it's this little section in her book, or in the chapter called um, The Delight of Loving My Husband. She calls it, Where Did All the Love Go? Um, she says, During my courtship with CJ, he had multiple speaking engagements in the local central Florida area. We were both desperate to be together, so as much as possible, I would accompany him to these meetings. Before long, I began to notice an unusual pattern. Mealtime would come and go, and CJ, preoccupied with ministering to people, would completely forget to eat. What's more, it didn't occur to him that I might be hungry. However, I didn't mind all that much. I so enjoyed his company that I was easily able to ignore my hunger pains. Then we got married. We traveled often during our first year of marriage, and not surprisingly, eating continued to remain a low priority for CJ. But now I began to grow resentful whenever we missed a meal. He's not thinking about me. He's more concerned about his ministry than he is about my needs. As these thoughts simmered, the loving feelings I felt for my husband turned to vengeful feelings, and these vengeful feelings led to angry reactions. So where did all my love go? The answer is very simple. Sin destroyed my tender love. CJ hadn't changed. He wasn't behaving any differently than before we were married. He certainly didn't have evil motives, not that this would have justified my anger. But instead of being patient with him, as he learned to care for a wife, I began to respond with bitterness and resentment. Consequently, my tender feelings evaporated. If we find that our affection for our husband is waning or has subsided altogether, then we do not need to look any further than our own hearts. Where sin is present, warm affection dissipates. Anger, bitterness, criticism, pride, selfishness, fear, laziness, all vigorously oppose tender love. This love cannot survive in a heart that harbors sin. That's just one little section. I love her passage or her whole chapter on loving our husbands. It was just really helpful. But I thought that might be good to read this morning. And then I'm just going to read this really short little section about loving children called Grave Responsibility, Greater Grace. No one needs to remind us that it is an enormous responsibility to be a mother. How well we know it. One woman expresses it this way. I seldom feel like much of an adventurer standing in his kitchen, pouring cereal into bowls, refilling them, handing out paper towels when the inevitable cry comes, uh-oh, I spilled. But sometimes at night, the thought will strike me. There are three small people here, breathing sweetly in their beds, whose lives are for the moment in our hands. I might as well be at the controls of a moonshot. The mission is so grave and vast. Though the mission is grave and vast, God's grace is greater. He kindly reminds us <clears throat> in his word, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So if today you missed opportunities to show a tender love, or if you neglected to pray for your children, or if you were impatient with them, and even if you lost your smile and feel like a complete failure as a mother, take heart. God's grace is sufficient for you. Look to the cross where Christ died. There he purchased forgiveness for our sins and power to grow in godliness. Not one of us is equal to this task of mothering, but he will help us in our weakness. God will provide all the grace we need to love our children tenderly. I hope that's encouraging to you guys. Um, the third discipline, discipline three, is about ministry. Would anyone like to read that? Thank you. The heart of God Okay, so as we think about discipline three for just a little bit, go ahead and turn to Matthew 25, verse 34. This is the discipline that we're going to be discussing today in our lesson. But I came across this passage, um, and I thought it was so encouraging just as I think about discipline three. So this section in Matthew um, describes when Jesus comes back to earth with his angels, and he separates all humanity into two groups those who voluntarily served Jesus in their earthly lives, and then the other group is everyone who did not. So the verse, I'll just go ahead and read it. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? <clears throat> Sorry, I think I have that down twice. The king will answer to them and say, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. This passage is motivation for us to reach out and to serve others in our church. When we take care of physical needs, when we offer hospitality, care for the sick or persecuted, Jesus says that we're caring for and serving Jesus himself. That is amazing. There have been times where I have received encouragement from a letter or a text or a coffee date in which I feel like God himself has directly encouraged me. And I know that God is just using that sister that I'm around to extend his own love to me. So um, the recipient of service in this kind of service is blessed to experience God's love. Um, and then the one who is serving is blessed because they are serving Jesus just as much as they're serving that other person. And it's a privilege to serve others because we know that Jesus considers our service to others a direct service to him, which I thought that was just so encouraging to think of serving in that way. Our motivation um, is strengthened when we think of how we're encouraging uh, or serving God. All right, so we'll go ahead and put away our notebooks. You can pull out your handouts. We will get started on this lesson. But before we start, I'd love to pray together. Heavenly Father, um, I just ask for your help um, as we come to this lesson and we dig into one specific verse um, written in an epistle from Paul. Um, God, I just pray that our hearts would be soft to hear from you. And I pray, God, that um, my words would just reflect um, and be consistent and accurate according to your word. God, we pray that um, this would only serve to make us more like Christ and to help us to serve and be a part of the body in a way that you want us to be, um, in the way that you want us to serve and care for each other. God, we just pray for your help and for your um, blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this morning... You can go ahead and open up to 1 Thessalonians 5, or you could just be in 1 Thessalonians because we're going to do a little bit of a review. But we're going to spend time in one verse that provides us with practical instruction for how to practice Discipline 3. So I'm going to restate Discipline 3. Um, it just tells us that we desire to step into the lives of each other in the church and outside the church in, other to, in order to point others to God and the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 provides us with not just techniques, but as David Pallison said, the verse provides us with different ways of loving appropriately. David Pallison was a biblical counselor and a speaker and a writer, and he wrote an article that has like a Puritan-type title. It's very long, but it's a really good article, and I'm going to quote from it probably, I don't know, three or four times this morning. I'll tell you the name of the article. It's called Familial Counseling, the Paradigm for counselor, counselee relationships in 1 Thessalonians 5. Seems like there could have been an easier title, but anyway, that's what it is. It's in the Journal of Biblical Counseling. Um, I don't remember. I have it down somewhere else. I don't know what, what um, issue it was. Nobody wants <clears throat> a misdiagnosis when it comes to physical health. A misdiagnosis prolongs issues, and it doesn't provide the correct solutions. If you have some symptoms that you're concerned about and you go to your doctor and you describe them, you're hoping for and looking for a correct diagnosis and also an appropriate solution to, or treatment. So you would not want to hear your doctor say, well, you have a high fever, you're definitely congested, and I hear you telling me you're pretty tired, I know exactly how to treat the sprained ankle. We're going to get some ice, you're going to elevate it and stay off your feet for a while. So you all know enough about medicine and the body to know that the doctor's solution and treatment do not match the presenting symptoms. And 
um, issues. So I found this website um, that records medical mistakes and misdiagnoses. And it was actually really scary to read. Don't read it before you're having surgery. But I will share one of the stories um, from this. So different like technicians, doctors, nurses wrote, wrote in anonymously and told stories. So this story is from a doctor about when he first started his practice. He said he had a patient come to him and she explained her symptoms as this. She said, I have spells of bizarre sensations, altered awareness, a pounding in the chest that's so hard I have to sit down and I have to stop what I'm doing and I can't even talk during those times. So, okay, that's probably not the most helpful or obvious of symptoms that a new doctor could hear. But then she also had in her written medical history that years before she had sustained a gunshot wound to the head, it had gone through the front part of her brain, and there was documented frontal lobe damage and scarring, and the optic nerve to one of her eyes had been severed. So this young doctor took all these symptoms into consideration, along with the previous brain trauma, and he had diagnosed her with having frontal lobe epilepsy. So he prescribed anti-seizure drugs, and they actually seemed to work initially. He continued to increase the doses, but eventually the symptoms um, that she came to him with originally came back. So I don't know if he kept treating her, but somehow he found out that a few years later, she went to an endocrinologist who checked her thyroid and discovered that she had hyperthyroidism. So she got treatment for that, um, started taking thyroid replacement, had her thyroid radiated, and all those other symptoms went away. She was able to stop taking the anti-epilepsy drugs um, because she had actually never had epilepsy. So this woman could have been helped two years prior if the original doctor had been able to diagnose her symptoms better. A correct diagnosis is crucial for the correct treatment. So in the verse that we're looking at today, it instructs us to check spiritual symptoms in one another so that we're able to give the appropriate kind of care to each other. God's wisdom provides us with real spiritual conditions and the correct spiritual solution. So we'll start here with an overview. Before we jump into the one verse, we're going to try to just get established in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, it's just helpful to zoom out usually a little bit if you're looking at one verse. Maybe zoom out and try to understand the context in which that verse sits. So just remember that this was a real letter. The book of 1 Thessalonians was written to real people about 1900 years ago, and this letter is inspired by God. The letter was sent from three men, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Paul was the author, and it was sent to the church of the Thessalonians, which means it was in the town of Thessalonica, which is a city in Macedonia. Today it's Greece, and that city still exists. It's called Thessaloniki, Greece. Um, the city back then had about 200,000 people in Paul's day, which is actually similar to Tempe right now. And Paul went to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. Of course, when he went, he went straight to the synagogue, and he started teaching about Jesus being the Messiah, and some Jews there believed, and then some Gentiles believed, and then a church was formed. Eventually, there was hostility from the Jewish religious leaders, and Paul was evicted from the city, kind of as usual. And then he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the church when Paul himself was in Athens. And then this letter, 1 Thessalonians, was written in response to Timothy's report back to Paul about the church. So I'm going to give you a, <clears throat> a key phrase to help you remember the main point of 1 Thessalonians. And I'm sorry, I don't have... This is all under that first part. We haven't started the blanks or anything. Um, this I borrow, I'm borrowing this key phrase from the book Color Through the Bible, which is something that my kids used years ago, and it's out of print now. But I think this summary is really helpful. Stay on target. So a target is a goal. It's something that you're aiming at. And Timothy's report about this church was encouraging to Paul because as a whole, they were staying on target spiritually. Paul in this letter just continues or asks them, encourages them to continue on staying in, on target. Another way to summarize the whole book would be excel still more. In this letter, Paul gives the church encouraging commendations. And here's how and why he commends the Thessalonian church. So now we can start our blanks. The church at Thessalonica had, first of all, become imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy 
as well as imitators of the Lord. We see that in chapter 1, verse 6. He also commended them because they had the reputation of expectantly waiting for Jesus to return from heaven. That's in verse 10. He also commended them because they received the word in much tribulation with joy. So this church was familiar with persecution, and the church also had real, true joy. And then fourthly, he commended them for receiving the word of God, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And that's in chapter 2, verse 13. So I'd like to just show you in the letter why Paul was able to commend this church. Um, you'll see why Stay on Target or Excel Still More really are appropriate um, summaries for the book. Go ahead and turn to chapter 4 and read verse 1 along with me. Paul makes three encouraging statements about the people in this church. He says, We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received the word from us, or sorry, as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, notice, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Then look down at verses 9 and 10. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And then jump down to chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. So this was a healthy, obedient church. That's the type of church who received the instruction in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. They were already practicing love toward each other, and they were walking in the way that they ought to walk and please God, in order to please God. So Paul commended the Thessalonians for walking in a manner pleasing to God. Paul basically said to them, we instructed you about how to walk and how to please God, and you're doing it. He affirmed their love for one another, and he affirmed the way that they were building one another up. Yet, he still believed it was necessary to remind them to do those things and to excel even more. All right, so let's zoom in now a little bit, focus on chapter 5. This is the chapter in which we find our verse for today's lesson. This chapter can be broken up into five sections, and so I'm just going to give you the sections until we get to our verse. So, first of all, I have on here a, yes, holy living in the day of the Lord. So the first 11 verses are about that. It's about holy living and the day of the Lord. Paul tells the church that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night, meaning it's going to be unexpected. While the people around them would be saying, peace and safety, we've achieved peace, we have safety for ourselves, things are good, then destruction and judgment is going to come up on them and surprise them. The reality that God exists and that every person is accountable to him is going to be obvious to everyone, and there will be no escape. So Paul encourages the Thessalonian church that they are not designed for that destruction. They have been graciously destined for salvation through Jesus Christ, who died for them, so that whether they're awake or asleep, they will live together with Christ, and that day is not going to overtake them. Paul tells the church to, first of all, be alert. In MacArthur's commentary, he says, we should be alert to the spiritual issues around us. We should not be like sleeping, darkened people who will be jolted out of their coma by the day of the Lord. Paul contrasts Christians with everyone else. He calls Christians sons of light, and he calls unbelievers sons of the night or of darkness and those that sleep. So Christians are aware of spiritual and eternal realities but those who do not believe are unaware, and they've chosen not to think about spiritual or eternal realities. Secondly, in this section, Paul also wrote that the church should be sober, verses 6 and 8 from chapter 5. Fine's Dictionary describes sober as being free from the influence of intoxicants. Paul uses this word metaphorically. The word sober can be translated self-controlled. Sobriety just implies a calm, collected spirit, one that is dispassionate, meaning it's not influenced by strong feeling. So not only should Christians be awake and alert to eternal realities, they also should not be under the influence of the world around them 
are affected in their spirit by the temporal situations around them the way that those outside of Christ are affected by them. That would include, but not be limited to, politics, promotions, demotions, financial gain or loss, success or failure in temporal pursuits. Those things should not be able to intoxicate us or influence us. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us, and he should and must be our greatest influence. Thirdly, there is a way that believers should be sober, and that is in verse 8. Third, so number three on here, um, in regard to being sober, we must remember that faith, love, and the hope of salvation protect us. Paul uses another metaphor here about putting on armor. In the way that a soldier would put on armor that protects his head and his body and his vital organs, we have put on faith, love, and the hope of salvation. And that's something that's already happened for us the moment God saved us, the moment we responded by trusting him and exercised faith. Our faith in God, our love for him, and our certainty about the future salvation that we have, that all protects us from being darkened, sleepy, and intoxicated by the world. It enables us to be alert, sober, and free from fear of sudden destruction. Since it was true that the Thessalonian believers were not destined for wrath, but for salvation through Jesus, Paul instructed them to encourage one another and build one another up as they already were doing. That's in verse 11. The same is true for all of us here in 2022. All of us who have obtained salvation through Jesus Christ, we've been given this salvation, not due to anything that we've done, anything that deserves or obtained salvation by works, but by a complete trust in Jesus' death in our place, and in our surrender to God as our Lord. We also, like the Thessalonians, must encourage one another and build one another up. Because whether we're awake or asleep, meaning whether we're alive on earth or alive in heaven, we live together with Jesus. Now, the next section in chapter 5 is about church relationships. It's B on your outline. It's a little uh, section, it's 12 through 15. Paul urges that the Thessalonian Christians appreciate and esteem those who labor among them. This short little section is just two verses um, for one. It has two parts to it. First, in verse 12, Paul describes the duties of a spiritual leader. He says a godly leader must diligently labor, number one, and secondly, has charge or oversight over God's people. And thirdly, a godly leader teaches or admonishes. And then in the second part of this section, it lays out the flip side of the duties of the church toward their leaders or their pastors. God's people should appreciate and esteem them in love. And the word appreciate has more to do with um, knowing someone than just being thankful. Um, if you have the NASB, you may have a note that suggests another translation uh, for that same word is know. So the people in the church are supposed to know their pastor or pastors as persons. I thought that was interesting. Also, Paul, Paul tells the Thessalonians to esteem their shepherds in love. And as one commentary noted, this is not due to the charm or personality of the shepherds, but because of the fact that they work for the chief shepherd, which is Jesus. And then finally, now we come to our verse 14. Um, that we're going to camp out on. Paul urges the believers to, secondly, I think it's number two, yes, um, care appropriately for one another. And we'll skip over that for now. Thirdly, in this section, um, Paul instructs the believers to seek what is good for all people. Seeking good for all people is a summary and it's a safeguard for how we do any sort of ministry or how we have any sort of personal interaction. And then Paul concludes this letter with, uh, it would probably be two more sections, um, he just basically gives um, commands, basics for Christian living, how to live, and then he closes the letter. So I just think it's really helpful to understand the flow and the main points of this letter so that our understanding of verse 14 is as robust as possible. So Paul wrote a letter to a church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles. They live in a self-ruling city in the Roman Empire. You can kind of imagine that. There is some freedom. There's also some prosperity there. 
Um, even though the thrust of this letter is encouragement to continue on in the sound, spiritually healthy way that they were living, the church wasn't perfect. In the letter, Paul had to address some false allegations that had been circulating in the church regarding his ministry. He also felt the need to encourage moral purity. I think that's in chapter 4. Um, he also needed to fuller give them a fuller explanation of what death is for the Christians. Oh, that one's in chapter 4. I know that one is. Um, and then he also needs to give clear commands about how to interact with one another in the church. So let's go ahead and dig in now to verse 14. We'll start on this uh, Roman numeral 3 section. And I'll just read that verse again. It says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So let's ask a how question of discipline 3. How? How do I step into the lives of my sisters in Christ in order to shepherd them toward God and the gospel? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is a really good answer to that question. It's not the complete answer, but it is one of the answers that scripture gives us. You and I are to patiently admonish, patiently encourage, and patiently help one another, as is fitting according to the need of the moment. This is actually a great verse to commit to memory. It gives us um, wisdom. It makes us thoughtful about how we can be flexible in our care towards one another. So notice, first of all, in this verse that Paul is urging the believers in Thessalonica. To urge is stronger than just to ask or suggest. Um, Paul is entreating them to do something. And this is something that's important, and it's something that must be done. Secondly, notice that Paul addresses these commands to the brethren. Paul was not urging the pastors or leaders only. Um, it was for everybody. Everyone that's been forgiven of their sins in Christ now gets to um, put into practice this command. Paul could have used the word believers or beloved, but he used the word brother instead. And I think this just reminds them and us of the family-like nature of the relationship between everyone who is in Christ. We are spiritual siblings. We're brothers and sisters. And so there should be the same affection and care that we would extend to natural family members as we interact with each other. There's four commands given in this verse, which I think you guys all probably wrote out in your homework. Those four commands are admonish, encourage, help, and be patient. So there's four commands given, and then there's three different categories given for people who are in need of specific care, the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. Just as we would desire an accurate medical diagnosis from a doctor, we, as spiritual sisters, need to take time to accurately diagnose another spiritual sibling's needs in order to minister appropriately. This may sound intimidating, but God has given us his word. We're told that we have the mind of Christ in the Bible. He's given us his spirit, and his wisdom is available to us. David Pallison wrote that 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is a passage describing and calling for the flexibility of wisdom. And to be honest, flexibility can just be hard for us. It requires thoughtfulness. Pallison observed that we may tend toward just one way of dealing with people. One person may have a natural bent towards encouragement, and so that person encourages all the time, no matter what symptoms are in front of them. He wrote, a hammer thinks everything is a nail. I'm assuming that's the one that is okay with admonishing. A blanket treats everyone as shivering. A wheelchair thinks everyone needs a lift. But wisdom sees people for what they are and gives what is needed. So our first command is to admonish the unruly. Let's start by understanding what unruly means. In the ESV, the word is translated idle. The NIV uses the word idle, but also adds disruptive to the description. Other versions say disorderly or irresponsible. The unruly the word unruly means to deviate from the prescribed order or rule. It was used to describe a soldier who was out of rank, behaving in a disorderly or insubordinate manner. He may not have been performing his duty or following through on his responsibility. So you can see why the word idle or disorderly would be used. So an unruly Christian is a believer who knows God's ways, knows what would please God, 
knows what God requires, but he or she chooses not to obey, chooses not to conform to God's righteousness or um, regulations. So this is a deliberate disregard for what God has commanded. Sarah Demarest said this about the unruly in her lesson. It's a person who does not stay within God's design for them in at least some area of life. The unruly know God's standards, but they are rejecting his authority over them by disobeying. They are choosing not to live as God instructs. So disorderliness or unruliness can be sins of commission, meaning a person is doing or performing a specific sin, or they could be a sin of omission, meaning that person's not doing something that God has commanded. And there's examples in the letters to the Thessalonians um, about both of these. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul warned the believers to abstain from sexual immorality. That would be a sin of commission, doing something that God forbids. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul had to admonish the sins of omission. He had heard that some of them in the church were living undisciplined lives because they weren't doing work. They were busybodies. He reminded them of what he had said to them when he was in person, that the one who does not work should not eat. So there's two examples of unruliness. One was doing what God forbid, and one was not doing what God had asked. So what does admonish mean? I think we probably understand unruly now. Um, some biblical versions, or Bible versions, use the word warn. The word literally can be translated to put in mind. John MacArthur says it is putting sense into someone's head, alerting him of the serious consequences of his actions. And I'm going to quote Sarah Demarest again. She said, it's a sharp reproof designed to rescue the one who was strayed outside of God's design for their life. Admonishment must not be given from a judgmental or a superior, unloving attitude in the one that's doing the admonishing. Admonishment should be given compassionately and also clearly so that sin is exposed and seen for what it is. The sister who must give admonishment should call the one who's stepping outside of God's design to turn back toward God and to obey him rather than her own desires. The standard for admonishment can be seen in Paul's example in Acts 20, 31. You don't have to turn there. It's just, I'll tell you about it. Um, he admonished the Ephesian elders for three years, and it says with tears. His admonishment was heartfelt. It came from a genuine love for them. Another verse that teaches us how to admonish is Galatians 6, 1. The goal, according to this verse, is to restore a believer who is trapped in sin. And the one that's admonishing must be gentle, also aware of her vulnerability to sin and temptation. You can also jot down 1 Corinthians 4, 14. In this, um, it's another letter that Paul wrote. He wrote to the Corinthians, um, and he was correcting some of their thinking, and he says, I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to admonish you as beloved children. So it's not necessarily to shame someone. It's not punitive, but it's the motive is love and care for the other person. And then Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, you might want to jot down too. That teaches us that it's unwise to reject admonishment from God or to hate his reproof. Um, God reproves the one he loves, just as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So we kind of get both sides of the admonishment. If we're receiving it, we need to make sure that we are not stiff-arming and rejecting admonishment, um, but trusting that God loves us. In the same way, if we're giving it, um, it must be like a father who loves and delights in a son, um, just as God does with us. So let's put this first command into a, a real-life sort of scenario. Let's say that a family has a rule that when mom and dad are out of the house, the kids are not allowed to watch TV or any sort of show. So they can only watch if the parents are home and give approval. So let's say that mom and dad leave the house and the child, one of the children, decide to get on Amazon Prime and watch a show. Let's say he even picks a show that's safe and usually approved by the parents. Well, when the parents come home, they find that he's gotten online and watched a show. What kind of child are they dealing with in this situation? What kind of child do they need to shepherd right now? Well, an unruly one, right? This child has willfully disregarded what his parents have deemed best for his own protection. He stepped out of rank 
he's deviated from the path of obedience. So knowing that they are dealing with an unruly child that will help the parents determine how best to shepherd him. They know from assessing the situation that encouragement is not what is needed, but admonishment. The child needs to recognize that what he's done is sin, that he's deliberately disregarded what his parents have forbid, he's sinned against his parents, he's sinned against his own conscience, and he just needs to be alerted to the serious consequences of his action and rescued from the way that he strayed. So it's easy, I feel like it's easier to apply this when we think of children, um, but now when we think about applying that same truth um, within the body of Christ with other adults, with believers, um, we need to be able to recognize when we're dealing with a sister that is unruly. You could ask, is this person choosing disobedience to God? Is she disregarding clear commands that God has given his children? Is she stepping outside of God's design in order to pursue sin? If the answer is yes, then this is an unruly person. According to God, the best way to care for this person is to lovingly and patiently admonish her. A sister who is boldly choosing to sin needs someone to be bold in calling sin what it is. This is loving because love rejoices in the truth. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, according to 1 Corinthians 13. Admonishing is calling out sin, but it doesn't stop there. Admonishment also points toward the rescue and the path of repentance. To admonish, we need something. We need God's word. Neither our personal preferences, that's not the basis for admonishment, nor our persuasiveness hold authority for admonishment. We have to rely on God's word as the standard for what actually requires admonishment and the standard for how to repent. So God's word is going to give you clarity and your sister clarity for what needs to be turned from and for how to turn to God in that specific area. All right, let's move on to the next category. Encourage the faint-hearted. What exactly does faint-hearted mean? So I'm going to give you some other translations of the same word. It's disheartened, that's in the NIV, discouraged, the Holman. The word literally means small-souled, like your soul, like a small soul. It can be a sister who is fearful and doubting God, someone who lacks boldness, someone who fears change or fears the unknown, someone who is timid. In the context of the Thessalonian believers, it may have been that some of them were faint-hearted because of their grief over the death of friends and family members. If you remember, 1 Thessalonians 4 is where Paul tells them about Christ returning in the air and informs them that those who died in Christ will be raised first, and then everyone else that's living that's a believer will be caught up with the Lord in the air, never to be separated again. And after explaining that, he, sa he says, you should encourage each other with those truths. So maybe they had been faint-hearted in that area. So what does Paul say that God wants us to do with a sister who is faint-hearted? Our response to a sister who is faint-hearted must be to patiently encourage her. What exactly does uh, sorry encouragement look like? It literally means that you give courage to someone. A sister's lacking courage and you seek to arm her with courage. Another way to think of it is to make her bold, to hearten her, to spur her on, to stimulate her or comfort her. And what are we giving her courage to do? We're seeking to give courage to a sister so that she can do what is right, to do what is, would please God, to do what God's commanded her to do in a specific situation. So let's think about faint-heartedness in the context of a parent-child relationship again. Imagine that you have a child who isn't comfortable around peers. Some of you probably cannot imagine that. Um, instead of joyfully interacting with other kids his age, this child stays close to you and does not make any effort to interact with other children. Let's say that you've been able to ask him questions about this and you've discerned that he is fearful of being disliked or rejected. Um, maybe he's fearful of just taking the initiative to ask someone to play. This child is lacking courage. He is timid and fearful. It seems pretty obvious in this case that the child needs to be given courage in the form of encouragement from mom and dad. So this illustration brings to light the role that instruction plays in encouragement. The timid, fearful child needs to be instructed in some truths that, if heeded, will arm him with courage. 
He may need to know that God desires that he loves others and that part of loving others means doing things that are hard, doing things that are uncomfortable, doing things that are sacrificial for the good of another. He may need to know that being rejected shouldn't be avoided at all costs. Being rejected is part of living in a fallen world. It's part of being a sinner, and it's often part of following Christ. He may need practical instruction, like what to say, how to engage another child, or ideas of what to invite another child to play with him. So instruction about truth can be given, can be used to give courage to the faint-hearted, and reminders of truth can also give courage to the faint-hearted. So maybe you've already done that, had those conversations with this timid child, and then you're in another situation and they resort to that faint-heartedness again in a situation. You may need only to remind them of the truths that they already know, but they're forgetting in the moment. Like maybe God is with you, God is good. Loving like Jesus is a privilege, regardless of the results. God is trustworthy and you can obey him. So let's think about encouragement in the realm of sister to sister. What do we need so that we can give courage to our sisters in Christ? Well, we need God's word. The best comfort and the source of best source of courage is truth about God, truth about the future, truth about this sister's current situation. I recognize that often I am or have been faint-hearted, and so I actually have a list of verses on a note in my phone, um, and I read or reread those when I'm aware of fear or faint-heartedness in myself. And I'm just going to share some of those verses with you. So I'm going to tell you the truth first, then I'll give you the reference. You may want to just write down the reference, or maybe I can just send you guys um, the list of verses. Um, I'll, I'll start this way. So um, the faint-hearted probably need certainty that God hears their prayers. That's Psalm 10:17. They may need to know that God does not forsake those who seek him. Psalm 9:9. 9, 9. The faint-hearted may need to know that God revives the spirit of the lowly and revives the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 57:15. The faint-hearted may need to know that whoever believes in God will not be put to shame. 1 Peter 2.6 That he will sustain us to the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.8 They may need to know that God will fulfill his purpose for them. Psalm 138.8 The faint-hearted may need to hear that they should not depend on their own wisdom, but they can trust in God with all their heart, knowing that he will make their paths straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. They may need to know that even though the Lord is exalted, he regards the lowly, but he knows the haughty from afar. Psalm 138, 6. They may need to know that the one who takes refuge in God is very blessed. Psalm 34, 8. And they may need to know that all things are under his sovereign, wise, and good control. Romans 8, 28, and Proverbs 16, 9. So to end this section, I'm going to read to you another part of that Pallison article on 1 Thessalonians 5.14. In this section of his article, um, Pallison just explains why admonishment for one person and why encouragement for the other. We already know it's true because God says it, but I thought his explanation for this was helpful. He writes, Wise and timely flexibility is the fruit of 1 Thessalonians 5.14. So you treat a discouraged anxious child differently from a willful, rebellious child. Paul teaches us to understand our brothers and sisters in terms, in terms of their particular struggles and then to respond appropriately. He never says, admonish the disheartened. To acknowledge personal wrongs is not step one for the anxious. If you primarily admonish them, you only further discourage them. But in light of facing their fears and troubles, the promises of God become sweet and life-giving. In the same way, Paul never says, encourage the unruly. Helping them grasp that God loves them and will not abandon them is not step one for the willful. If you simply offer promises of kindness to the willful, you will only reinforce their impression that God is a sentimental dupe and reinforce their confidence that they can get away with whatever they're doing. But in light of facing their sins, then the promises of God become sweet and life-giving. So I think Pallison is just trying to get at what is step one for these people. Not that uh, disheartened aren't sinning, 
Um, but step one is going to be different for both of these people. Um, when the unruly are helped to face their sin, then those promises of God can be used appropriately that are encouraging and helpful. And then when the um, anxious are just given those promises first, then maybe they're going to be able to repent from some of their misunderstandings um, of God's character. Let's look at the next command. Help the weak. Now, the category of weak um, may seem to you, like it did to me at first, almost like a subcategory of faint-hearted, or maybe it just seems like it's hard to distinguish between the two. So it didn't really help for me to go to the, all the other translations and try to get different words to describe it because every single other translation used the word weak. <laughs> so it's like, okay, well, it's weak. Um, so I went to the definition. The definition um, basically means, just like what it sounds like, those without spiritual or moral strength. One commentary said, the weak are those who are about to yield to temptation, those who cannot endure the testing of persecution and reproach. So Maybe that's helpful. We're just going to go ahead and start talking about the solution because I felt like once I started understanding what it means to help, it made what the, who the weak are a little bit more distinguishable. So um, the response to the, the weak person is to help. The word help means that you come near, you come close to that person in order to help lift them up. This kind of help can be seen in the area of gardening. Some plants need help in the form of a stake being driven into the ground right next to a limb or a branch that's having a hard time holding itself up. The plant needs support in order to grow in the correct direction. So in the same way with a sister who is weak, we need to come near and help hold her up, support her. And I don't mean support in the sense of the way it's often used now that we're affirming everything that that person is doing. That's not what I mean by support. We're coming near to help her make the right decisions, help her apply truth, um, give her resources that, so that she can grow in the right direction and then eventually become strong enough to stand on her own. So you can see from the different solutions how the weak person is different from the faint-hearted. The weak sister is one who is really struggling to resist temptation on her own. She may need someone to actually physically be with her when she is tempted um, by a specific sin, or maybe she just needs to have someone that she can call when she's faced with that temptation. So let's think back to the child-parent um, illustration a scenario. Imagine you have a child who makes poor decisions in choosing friends and maybe makes poor decisions when they're around friends, just in general. That child is drawn to children that are fun, but maybe disrespectful. Maybe kids that are pushing the limits of what's appropriate. Maybe kids that are unkind or selfish, um, etc. But when your child has the option of being around those kids, he has a really hard time choosing to play with someone else, or maybe just has a hard time choosing to not go along with their behavior. So as a parent, you see that this child is weak, weak in choosing to resist temptation, in choosing what is wise, choosing to obey what you've asked him to do. So as a result, you're not going to just leave him out on his own to make those decisions, keep making the wrong decisions, um, to keep being influenced by the people that he's naturally drawn to. You are going to come near, you're going to be close to him and help him make those decisions. You'll be probably directing his free time directing his play dates. So as we think about this now in the realm of adults and in the body of Christ, um, it's going to be a little bit different. We're not going to be making decisions for our sisters in Christ. They are adults. Um, also, the difference is we're dealing with a believer who has the desire to resist the temptation, whereas maybe the child doesn't even have that desire. Um, but it still means we're coming near in order to help this person resist temptation. What do we need in order to help the weak? We will need God's word, just as we do when we admonish and when we encourage. God's truth will give you, the one who is helping, the motivation to keep helping. It will also give you the truth that your sister who is weak needs. She needs to be certain that the sin she's so tempted by is actually indeed a sin, and that God has provided a way for her to escape the temptation. And that way may include you, helping, you helping her. God's word will also give hope to the one who's weak. 
hope that the power of sin has been defeated in her life and that someday the presence of sin is going to be gone forever, she needs to know that the fight is worth it. The one who is helping the weak sister must desire and work toward the end goal, which is that that weak sister in Christ grows strong and doesn't have to rely on you or anyone else, but is able to rely completely, fully on God. So the help we offer needs to point the weak sister to the strength that she has in God through Christ, through the Holy Spirit. We don't want to help in a way that just keeps creating a dependence on us rather than a dependence on the Lord. It would be inappropriate for a stake to bear the entire weight of a tree, right? That would be a sign of a unhealthy or a weak tree. The stake is supposed to be there just for a time to support the branch so that it can grow strong enough and then go in the right direction and then the stake can be removed. So there's one more command in this verse and it is be patient with everyone. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So, regardless of how you assess the sister that you're interacting with, whether she's willfully disobeying, frozen by fear, unable to function well on her own, you must be patient with her. I'm going to give you some definitions and descriptions of patience. The word patience is interchangeable with the word long-suffering. According to Expositor's Bible Commentary, I have another definition. It is, patience is an even-tempered response of someone who is slow to anger. Sorry, let me figure out where we're at here. Okay, yeah. Um, That same commentary noted that dealing with the idle, the timid, the weak requires this disposition because these three groups of people so often refuse to respond immediately to constructive counsel. You do need patience. Another description of patience is the opposite of short-tempered. Leon Morris says, impatience is easy, and reminds us that patience is the first description of love listed in 1 Corinthians 13. Patience literally means to be long-tempered. D. Edmund Hebert wrote that patience is that admirable quality which refuses readily to yield to anger and retaliation in the face of provocation or irritation. Those are just really good. It's good to just dive in a little bit more and think about patience and how to describe it and how to define it. Um, Sorry. So if we're doing all three of these things, admonishing, encouraging, helping, according to what the situation and the person calls for, At some point, we're probably going to end up serving a sister in a way that's just not easy for us, maybe not natural to our personality. Um, We are going to need to exert patience in our admonishment, in our encouragement, in our helping. And really, there's nothing in our Christian life that's just easy or natural. Um, We are not called to live naturally, but supernaturally. So we're going to need patience so that we don't stop doing what God's called us to do for our sisters in Christ when we don't see fruit. Just as God desires us to be faithful in spreading the gospel, faithful in raising our children, and we're supposed to leave the results to him, the same is true as we minister to the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. We need to do those things that he's called us to do with patience, and we leave the results up to him. So before we end, let's talk briefly about some reasons why we would choose not to obey First Thessalonians 5.14. What are some hindrances to obeying it? I'm sure there's more um, than five, but I had five that came to mind as I was thinking about this. First of all, we may be hindered in obeying just because we have difficulty assessing what somebody is, um, whether they're unruly, um, faint-hearted, or weak. The first answer to this difficulty is James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Secondly, just remember that if it's not obvious to you what this person is, you don't have to make a hasty decision and put someone in a category arbitrarily. Take time to listen. It's better to go about it slowly. Ask questions. Keep listening. Ask God for discernment and search the Bible. It may be helpful um, for you to just note verses 
that describe the unruly, the faint-hearted and weak as you read through the Bible. So you have some more ideas of categories or um, maybe symptoms would be a, the right word to use there. And if you're really unsure um, of what you're dealing with in terms of a ministry relationship that you know you need to help in some way, um, you may need to ask someone else who is biblically wise for counsel. You can just flatten out details, leave out names, um, so that you can receive some help in being discerning. It may take a few conversations with the sister that you're trying to care for, and that's okay. And just remember that all of us at different times have exhibited all three of these categories in our lives. These categories aren't boxes that we want to put people in and they can't get out of. We're not trying to assess and label a person so that we have a category for them for the rest of their life. Oh, that's the person that's faint-hearted. She is just always faint-hearted. No, it's just for in a situation. Um, it's for a specific time. Um, and neither do we need to put everyone that we interact with into one of these three categories. It doesn't mean that everyone we're interacting with is, oh, you're unruly today. Oh, you're faint-hearted. You're weak. Well, no, these are just, as you see this, as you encounter this, um, God lets you know how you can care for them, what your course of action should be in order to minister to them. All right, a second hindrance is just laziness. Um, so to be honest, it's just easy to do what comes naturally to us. So it may be easier to overlook sin and overlook weakness because it requires work and effort on our part. To love and care for another sister in Christ is going to require sacrifice, and we may not be willing to make that effort. So the answer for this hindrance is to look to Jesus and repent. Um, Jesus gave us the definition of love. Love is self-emptying. Jesus loved us. He gave himself up for us so that we could be forgiven for our sins. He was not lazy. He is not selfish. Philippians 2 says, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. We may be lazy in correctly assessing um, the person in front of us because it actually takes work and care and time to discern what our sister is struggling with. So if we are comfortable with admonishing, it may just be easier to admonish and move on or to give encouragement and move on. But 1 Thessalonians 5.14 doesn't give us uh, the opportunity to just be lazy. We have these categories in front of us. Third, a third hindrance may be just a lack of love or a lack of involvement in body life. Most years in Wellspring, we have an entire lesson on the one another's in Scripture. Um, this year, we don't have it. But the one another's are instructions in the New Testament in which God tells us how we are to interact with each other in the church. We are to love one another, serve one another, confess sin to one another, admonish, help, encourage one another. There's many more. Can we be obedient to those commands if we're not around other believers or coming into contact with each other enough to even know if someone's unruly, faint-hearted, or weak? One individual is not going to be able to care for the entire church in these specific ways. We are all needed for growth in the church. We each should be striving to be faithful in the sphere that we're in, um, whether it's your small group, um, discussion groups here, um, the people that you end up interacting with as you drop your kids off that have kids the same age as you. Um, we just want to be aware and ready to serve. All right, fourth hindrance could be the fear of man. The fear of man, or another way to say it, the love of man's approval may keep us from obeying the commands in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. If we really want to be liked more than we want to honor God, then it's going to be hard to admonish the unruly. If we want to be admired or depended upon, we may not help the weak in a way that's going to enable them to fully depend on God. The fear of man may keep us from encouraging with God's word if the person that we're encouraging wants to hear something else. I don't want to hear from God's word. <laughs> Go ahead and look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. You are still open to 1 Thess. This verse is why Paul and his companions were able to admonish and encourage and help with patience. It says, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. 
for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Paul knew that he was approved by God. He was a sinner saved by grace. He had peace with God through Jesus' death on his behalf. God's the only one that can save. God's the only one that can condemn. And so those truths weighed far outweighed any concern that Paul had with other people. It levels humanity. Um, there's just no one else that Paul needed to fear. So because he'd been approved by God, Paul was also entrusted with the gospel. He wanted to please God and not man. He was not speaking with flattery to the Thessalonians. He didn't come to them in order to gain from them, whether it would be gaining money or respect or admiration. Likewise, we don't want to serve other sis another sister hoping to gain something personally. The woman who fears God rather than people will be free to effectively love and minister to others. Also, Paul's lack of fear of man didn't make him insensitive. It's not like, oh, I don't care what you think about me. I can just do whatever I want. Look at verse 7. He says, We proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So fearing God rather than fearing man frees us up to do and to say things that might be hard to do or to say, but it also frees us up to love with tender, affectionate love. And another hindrance, the last one, is feeling inadequate for the task. In some ways, this is um, similar to number one, um, but maybe it's different and just, you don't feel adequate to the task of bringing God's word appropriately to bear in the life of the unruly, the faint-hearted, or the weak. The solution to this hindrance um, is found in God's word. Maybe you feel like you don't know God's word well enough to know how to apply it to your sister who needs to be admonished or who needs to be encouraged. Just consider that this is a good opportunity for you to sit down, dig into God's word, see what God's word has to say about a specific sin or about fear and timidity. Maybe um, all you need to do is just think back to what you read this morning. Or look back in your journal, see what you read in the last week. If you have been taking care of your own heart, dealing with your own sin, um, confessing sin, feeding yourself God's truth for the sake of your own heart, you will have something to offer your sister in need. So the opportunity to minister to the need of another may be the means that God uses to cause you to know him better and to know his word better. God in his wisdom gave us 1 Thessalonians 5.14 as a guide for how we can care for, how we can assess what would best help our spiritual siblings. We can trust him to give us the wisdom and the patience necessary to obey the commands in this verse. We can also trust him with the results as we seek to be faithful and to love in the same manner that he has loved us.